I want to thank Matt for Matt and Peggy and whoever else is involved in inviting me to come up and do this workshop. I don't know how many of you have done workshops before. This is a going to be a six-hour workshop and uh, on the 12 steps, using the 12 and 12 primarily. Uh, normally, I do a 12-hour workshop over a weekend, and so this is like my second attempt to to do it in six hours. And for any of you, that, you know, I don't want to preach to the choir, but I do want to tell you this isn't AA approved. I'm not AA approved. You're not AA approved. But we're going to try to do the best we can today. Uh, I don't want to pretend that uh, this is Wayne's way. I don't want to try to get you to think that my way is the right way. Uh, I want you to have an open mind. I'm going to share with you a lot of experience about what happened to me based on the type of an alcoholic I am. I assume that that's why they asked me to come do this workshop because I don't advertise and I don't promote it. I, I, I've got to be truthful with you. I'd rather be home. I'd rather be home with my friends. Uh, spending the weekend with him, having a good time, but because I've been asked to come share my experience on this workshop and the idea that another alcoholic might benefit by it, that's why I'm willing to be here. I could lie to you and say that I don't mind being away from family and friends and loved ones, but you would know that would be an outright lie. And by the time we get to the eighth step this afternoon, I don't want to have to make an amendment. But the fact of the matter is, I am glad to be here, and uh, I'll share with you my experience. Matt, I know, is asking me to come up and do this. Uh, because he knows what my personal experience is and how I struggled in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Matt and I both understand that a lot of people like me, and I presume some of you, suffer the same way. Uh, I'm one who didn't believe in the 12 and 12. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Uh, the 12-hour workshop goes completely out of the 12 and 12. We go page by page and we read through it and we look at little pictures because I like little pictures. And when we get to the fourth step, I've got a little outline booklet that I put together that I use to do my steps because I'm a little bit retarded. i got to have a remedial AA. And uh, we'll pass them out when we get to the fourth step, and you can use them or discard them however you see fit. I don't want anybody to be thinking that I'm trying to sell you on the idea that uh, if you don't do it this way, you won't stay sober, because that's not the truth. I'm assuming everybody that came in this room was sober before you came here. And I'm, I'm kind of a seeker. I, I am one who believes I need as much information as I can get to protect myself from what might come down the road. Some people in AA, when I was new, I heard a bunch of people that always said, you don't need to know a damn thing, just do what you're told. And those people scare me. And then they'll quote that part from the big book where it says, uh, self-knowledge will avail you nothing. You know, the problem with that statement is, is it leaves off, leaves off the first half of that sentence. It says that we have absolutely been unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge, which means self-knowledge only. And it means stop drinking. Is anybody in this room drinking today? Be truthful. Anybody drinking today? We've stopped drinking. So now what I have to do is I have to learn how to stay stopped. And everything about Alcoholics Anonymous is gaining information through experience. And what I'm going to share with you today, as briefly as I can, is that experience. Now, for me, it's experience, which turned into knowledge and understanding for me. And I want to try to share that with you. Because I'm a guy that is seven years sober, was in worse shape than I ever was before I ever came to that day. My life had gone downhill faster. Uh, I was doing the same thing sober that I was doing drinking. And well, no matter what anybody said to me, it wasn't going to stop me. I was in the throes of a thing called alcoholism. And it wasn't because I wasn't ready. It wasn't because I didn't want to get better. It was because I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I'm the type of person that if I don't believe I've got a certain condition, I won't take the medication required. And uh, it's like alcoholism is a, is a strange thing. It's the one spiritual disease. It's a disease, yes, but it's a spiritual disease according to the big book. But it's the one spiritual disease that doesn't kill just the person who's afflicted with the disease. 
It alienates and isolates and annihilates every facet of our lives, including our family, our loved ones, our friends, our employment. It takes out everybody around us. What I've got is a condition I didn't understand. I've got a thing called alcoholism. And, uh, you know, AA is going to be 64 years old in June. I don't know about you, but I'm getting excited about Minnesota already. How many in here is going to go to Minnesota for the 65th anniversary of AA? I know I'm going. If you haven't been, how many haven't ever been to an international convention? The five-year one. I strongly implore upon you to go. The cost will be long worth it because I'm still, it's been, it's been three and a half years now, and I can still remember who I met in San Diego. I can remember the jobs I had at the convention. I remember the events that I attended. And I get excited about it when I refresh my memory. What it does is it makes me fall in love with AA all over again. Because AA is a lot bigger than just Fresno. It's a lot bigger than just LA. I had no idea that AA, mentally I did, but not emotionally. AA is worldwide. It's international. I travel an awful lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's one constant. People are staying sober everywhere. And there's a lot of people that aren't staying sober everywhere. And I, I think that... Uh, the reason I'm asked to do this workshop is because there's a lot of people of my type of alcoholic that don't stay sober, uh, not because they don't want to, but because they just don't believe they're sick. I was one who didn't believe I was that sick. And uh, I came to believe seven years dry on the verge of uh, suicide, homicide, or taking medication, that there was something strangely wrong with me. It's an interesting thing. When, you're, when I'm seven years sober, I weigh 146 pounds. I'm more depressed than I've ever been in my entire life. And I'm convinced absolutely of one thing. AA doesn't work. I was absolutely convinced of that. AA doesn't work. I mean, I've been doing steps 1, 12, and 13, and AA just ain't working. I'll tell you something. If you do steps 1 and 12, 13 will take you right back to 1. Strange math in AA. Uh, but seven years over, I know today why I didn't do steps 2 through 11. You can put a lot of therapy ideas, you can put a lot of psychology in there, but here's the bottom line. I really didn't believe I was an alcoholic. I really didn't believe it. And for me to take the actions necessary as we find it in AA to take the steps, I had to be convinced of my innermost self that I not only was an alcoholic, but suffered from a condition called alcoholism. And I didn't know what that meant. I, you know, I thought it was just kind of a smarty catchword, alcoholic, alcoholism. Isn't that the same thing? And you know what? My brother is sober 18 years. He's an alcoholic. He doesn't, this might make you wonder for a minute, but my brother doesn't suffer from alcoholism. My brother's an alcoholic. My brother got addicted to alcohol. When he drinks, it ruined his life. And he had to stop drinking because the phenomenon of craving, every time he picks up a drink, he can't stop. And when he picks up a drink, he does things he shouldn't do, and his wife gets mad at him, he destroys his family. But when he stops drinking and has a period of adjustment, my brother does fine. So for the last 18 years, my brother hasn't picked up a drink. No pills, powders, potions, or lotions. Goes to one meeting a year, whether he needs it or not. And he's happy, joyous, and free. And I resented him for a long time. Just 18 years. I go to five meetings a week. I've done that now for 21 years and five months. I go to meetings regular, and I found out that there's something different about me and my brother. I suffer from alcoholism. My brother is an alcoholic. You might say that's the same thing, but I've come to find out that it is not the same thing, and that's what allows me to be here with you. Um, I mean, I want to, there's uh, some things I want to read to you about the history of AA. See, there's a, how many of you know the history of AA? How many of you have read it? The history of AA is what hooked me. Uh, 
you know, we go back to 1934, and we think that's where the history, some of us may think that's where the history started, but you know, it's really not where it started. It started thousands of years ago. I think we've got over 5,000 years of recorded history, and there's never been a movement compared to AA in that entire period of time that's done for us what AA has done for us. The Washingtonians tried it, the Oscar group tried it, and a little movement called the Emanuel Movement tried it. But they kept failing for one reason or another, the main reason being that they kept deviating from the AA way. Well, not the AA way because we didn't have AA yet, but they deviated from their primary purpose. The Washingtonians got into all kinds of temperance movements and slavery abolition and everything else. And the Oscar group, of course, was a religious society, and they didn't want to just help the alcoholic. And the Emanuel Movement, a little known movement that became, that came between the Washingtonians and the Oscar groups, they almost had it. There was a guy named Courtney Baylor who was working with this psychiatrist. And they realized that there was something about the alcoholic mentality, the mind, that that's where the problem centered. That was the first time they ever discovered that, that the problem was really in the mind, not in the bottle. And Courtney Baylor discovered that. And so he told his psychiatrist, if we could find a way to relax the mind of an alcoholic, that we would cure him. Well, now we have Valium, Librium, because see, they went the way of medication. They didn't go the way of spirituality because they didn't understand the two things. It wasn't until the Oscar group and Bill Wilson come along that they found out the connection between the spiritual maladjustment, the separation, and the need for a spiritual way of life. And uh, here's a little thing you may not know. Do you know that Dr. Bob was in the Oscar group when he met Bill Wilson? You know he could not quit drinking in the Oscar group. He was trying. They tried everything they could in the Oscar group, and Dr. Bob could not drink. Could not stop. Bill Wilson met Dr. Bob through Henrietta Cyberling, and with their chance meeting, he came out of there was to drink one more time, but basically was a free man, and he got sober. So the connection wasn't the Oscar group. The connection was Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob meeting each other and reaching out. And here's a fascinating thing. Bob went his way, and Bill went that way. Now, it's a proven fact, it's recorded, that Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson never had an unkind word between them. You can't say that about their siblings. The people they sponsored. If you go to Akron today, they don't like Bill Wilson. If you go to New York, they love Bill Wilson. It's an interesting dichotomy because the Bill Wilson type of an alcoholic, that's why this workshop's here, the Bill Wilson type of an alcoholic is my brother. Or the, the Dr. Bob type of alcoholic is my brother. Unemotional. I don't know how many of you have read Dr. Bob's history, but after Dr. Bob got sober about a year after he found sobriety, he straightened out. And his emotions never wavered after that. The worst emotional upheaval he had was when his wife died. And he never did get over that. But he never lost a physical craving for alcohol, but his life was fine. And he was always warning Bill Wilson to settle down. Calm down. You're too manic. You're too busy. Bill Wilson, on the other hand, I'm paraphrasing, was to think that Dr. Bob was a little slow and unemotional. Bill had passion. Dr. Bob had patience. You know, the interesting fact was that I found out that there's two specific types of alcoholic. One has alcoholism, one is an alcoholic, and never the twain shall meet. And I almost died because I didn't know that. Because when I got sober in Illinois, a room like this, I was the abnormal person in that room. I had intense emotions. I suffered from pains of anxiety, depression, and fear. Unrelenting. And the people around me, they got sober and held their life got better. And I couldn't understand that. They weren't riddled with emotion. When they took the 12 steps through the Rose Garden and they wondered why I just couldn't do that. Brother, why don't you just work the steps? 
And they would say all kinds of cute things, and I would feel bad about that. I would feel bad because I didn't believe them. I didn't know what was wrong. And for seven years, I went trudging through Alcoholics Anonymous, becoming more and more and more desperately alone and miserable and feeling like I didn't fit in AA. I didn't understand. Seven years sober, I go see a doctor. And that doctor diagnosed me manic depressive bipolar. And I'll never forget it. He prescribed medication for me. He drew my blood. Now, when they draw blood and take your blood test, you have to believe what they tell you. He told me that I had a chemical imbalance. Said I needed lithium. He said, no, that's not addictive. It's a salt substitute, salt something. And then he wanted me to take a drug called amitriptyline, which is a pain blocker, mood blocker. And then he wanted me to take another chemical, which we all know today as Prozac. It wasn't named yet back then, but it was an antidepressant. And uh, that's where my sponsor, and having a sponsor, thanks, Matt. My kind of guy. Look at all that water. You know, I was at, that, I was at a convention. Two weekends ago, and I always want an opportunity to do this. They, whether you speak or not, you've got to pay for your coffee. So I said, all right, that's cool. How much is it? They said, all you can drink for a dollar. I gave him two bucks. <laughs> I really did. I wasn't doing it as a joke. I gave him two bucks. And then the guy just looked at me and thought I was being cute, so I let him, I went along with him. I didn't want him to know that I really paid him two bucks for all the coffee I could drink. Okay, I want to read this. This is, this is about what happened in AA. In the beginning, Dr. Carl Jung, our noted Swiss psychiatrist, pronounced Roland Hazard hopeless apart from divine help, unconsciously discovering the door behind which lay locked the answers to our alcoholic's dilemma. Dr. William Sofie Sokolov, who was responsible for the medical estimate of our condition, gave us the much needed knowledge of our illness, showing the mysteries of the lock that held us in prison. Reverend Sam Shoemaker, noted by Bill Wilson to be an AA co-founder, gave us the concrete knowledge of what we could do about it passing on the spiritual keys by which we were liberated. Dr. Harry Kubo, noted for citing our need for deflationate debt, gave us the necessary insights into our natural state as maladjusted human beings, thereby exposing the loss of the door. Father Ed Bowen, Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor, was to discover the prison within, built of inherent walls of faulty emotional dependencies, placed upon people, places, and things for personal security, safety, and survival. Locks which obscured the idea and the presence and power of God from the soul imprisoned within. Bill Wilson, AA co-founder to be, took these keys and acted upon them, unlocking the door, an experience which ultimately led to Dr. Bob and the opening of the door for AA number three, Bill D, and the first hundred men and women to follow their lead. Thus consummating the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous, liberating those and countless others who have since passed through, including yours truly. Bill W. and Dr. Bob, AA co-founders, and the incomparable sister Ignatius, Figgy, as finally referred to by Dr. Bob, were then to commit an act of selflessness and courage. They elected to stand by the door of the AA, assuring that any and every sick and suffering alcoholic who may stumble by, obscured by the gloom, despair, and despondency of active alcoholism, may discover and reach out to grasp the handle of the door which leads to a newfound freedom, to find another kindred spirit within. Much time has passed. The pioneers are all gone now but in spirit. The responsibility for the future of AA rests with us. Will you stand by the door? That's kind of a challenge. Will you stand by the door? But now let me read you something. It's probably the only real poem that I, I like very much. It was written by Helen Shoemaker, uh, Sam Shoemaker's wife. If I can find the darn thing. Where is it? What's that? Front of the 11th step. It's in a book called I Stand by the Door. Reverend Sam Shoemaker was, was the leader of the Oxford group 
where Bill Wilson stumbled in. And uh, when she wrote that book, this is the poem he wrote, and it's believed to be AA's Manifest Destiny. You're all going to get a copy of this before you leave. It's uh, known as AA's Manifest Destiny. I hate being read to in meetings, but let me read this poem to you because it's very moving. And if you listen to the words, you'll hear that, it, that it's AA's Manifest Destiny. This was written before we were here. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find their God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, to go to the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch. The latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside that door, starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. Die for what of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it. Live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down in the cavernous cellars and way up in for the spacious attics. It is a vast roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and heights of God. And call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in. Sometimes venture in a little further. But my place seems closer to the opening. So I stand by the door. There's another reason why I stand there. Some people get part way in and become afraid. Lest God and the zeal of his house devour them. For God is so very great. And asks all of us. And those people feel cosmic claustrophobia. And want to get out. Let me out, they cry. And the people who are inside only terrify them more. Somebody must be by the door to tell them that they are not alone. And that they are spoiled. For the old life. For they have seen too much. Once chase God and nothing but God will do anymore. Somebody must be watching for the frightened. Who seek to sneak out just where they came in. To tell them how much better it is inside. For people too far in do not see how near these are to leaving. Preoccupied with the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those who have entered the door but would like to run away. So for them too, I stand by the door. I admire the people who go away in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door. Or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my own accustomed place. Near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men as not to hear them. Now remember, they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put upon the lash. So I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, so I stand by the door. That poem moved me because it said everything there is to say about Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here. I'm here because 
someone might want to put their hand on AA, and I want to make sure that my hand is out there. When I was new, my sponsor had me sign a contract. I didn't know AA had contracts. <laughs> now, if you don't know this and you get a newcomer, here it is. It says, I am responsible. When anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there, and for that, I am responsible. Now, my sponsor lied to me and told me I had to sign that if I wanted to stay sober. <laughs> and I signed it. And you know, he threw that in my face every time I blocked it. Wanted it something he'd ask me to do? <laughs> and say, remember that paper you signed? You said you, you might drink. He got away with that for about a year. All right. I'm going to make sure everybody gets one of those poems because I believe that's what we need to do. So, you, without reading, one of the things that used to bother me was God business. And I always wondered why do we got to have God? Why do we got to have this God business? If I'm an alcoholic and I have a disease. And that, I think that's a fair question. My mother has had lung cancer and she didn't need a 12 step program. She needed to take chemotherapy and have some surgery. My father had sugar diabetes. He did not have to get God. He did not have to have a spiritual awakening. He had to take insulin. My friend Mike got Lou Gehrig's disease. Call that program and then take it away. Mike's got Lou Gehrig's disease. He doesn't have to have a call set program for Lou Gehrig's disease. So why do I got to have God? And I think that's a fair question, don't you? So for seven years I sat in these meetings and got worse and worse and worse because I truly didn't believe I had alcoholism. Step one is an interesting adventure for me. Now in the big book, I'm going to quote a little bit from the big book. I don't have time to read as much as I like to read out of the books. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to have blind faith that I'm not misleading you. And then when you get home, look it up. And if I'm lying to you, call me home and we'll straighten it out. I'm going to do the best I can to quote it. And if I paraphrase, I'll try to try to not inadvertently say something that's not in our literature. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a thing called the doctor's opinion. There's three reasons why I'm an alcoholic. And I didn't know. One is, one is easy. The phenomenon of craving. I didn't know what that was. Others, the mental obsession. I thought that was different from a craving. You know, mental obsession coupled with a physical allergy. I thought they were two totally different things. And what we're going to find out a little bit later on is that they're exactly the same thing, only one's a mental craving, one's a physical craving. And that's why you see a lot of people getting sober at the age of 15 and 20. Some of us that didn't get sober at 15 and 20 wondered how they could be an alcoholic. I know I sponsor a number of people. There's one here in the room today that got sober at the age of 13. And I've been her sponsor since she was 19. And that, well, I don't know how old she is now. But she, how do you, how can you be an alcoholic at 13? Most people tell you that's just adolescence run amok. How can you be an alcoholic at 15? Because you couldn't have possibly drank the amounts of alcohol that people at 35 and 40 and 50 drank. And that's why I came to understand that there's two specific cravings. You can have one or both. We're going to find that out in a minute. Dr. Silkworth gave us a description of the allergy and the obsession of the mind. And then he went on to tell us that we have a soul sickness. Now, all this stuff could be pig Latin to me, but I understand it today. But I want to share with you, by the way, all this stuff comes out of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's 12 and 12, and I've got about uh, 25 articles in here written by the 12 apostles of that day. I like to call them. None of them are alcoholic. They're the ones who gave us our program. It's an interesting thing. Bill and Bob were the fusion God used to reach us because he knows we wouldn't listen to nobody else. But after he gave us Bill and Bob, then he brought in these other people. 
I don't know if you ever heard of the Twelve Apostles of AA. That's kind of something I made up. But I like it, so I can. You got the shoemaker, silkworth, Thibault, Dowling, you, uh, guy by the name of Reverend Boniker. Uh, you got Henrietta Cyberling, Reverend Walter Trunks. You got 12 different people who gave us information that allowed us to know that there's a difference between being an alcoholic and having alcoholism. And the reason that's important for me is because I'm not just an alcoholic. I have a thing called alcoholism, and I had the ism from as since I can remember. I had this since I can remember at the age of four on up. I've had the ism long before I ever drank. And I didn't know that. And not knowing that almost killed me. <clears throat> Silver, in the doctor's opinion, tells about alcohol producing an effect. You've all heard about the effect produced by alcohol. And how... In, in the book, he also says it's an illusion, which means it doesn't really happen. It's an illusion. It seems to happen in our mind. But out here, nobody knows it's happening. And so they think we're crazy. In the big book, Silkworth says that we are strangely insane. Why didn't he just say crazy as hell? He says strangely insane. And I've come to discover it because I'm not really insane. Some people might argue with that. I've been in 17 psychiatric institutions. Fifteen by self training. I tell you, it gets lonely out there. And I found out, you see, on the street, because of the way I drank and the way I acted, I couldn't get a date to save my life. But when I went to the psych ward, I had a 50-50 shot. It was great. I've been diagnosed 17 times. Not one time was I diagnosed an alcoholic. I was diagnosed many different psychiatric diagnoses, and I have absolutely no bitterness towards them doctors, and I'll tell you why. They were diagnosing what they saw. They were absolutely right given what they saw. But because they don't understand the element that Chuck C. knew about, that's this part right here. That's where I'm over here. That's my hair. And that's me wiping my eyes. I'm over here. Here's the rest of the world just having a great time. And I'm over here separated and alone and afraid. And this puts me in a posture of being afflicted with the thing called the ism. And I didn't know what that was. I had no idea what that was. Ism stands for, it's in the big book. Remember, everything I share with you is going to be in the big book of the 12 and 12 or these writings by our 12 apostles. That ism stands for internal spiritual maladjustment. You've heard a lot of acronyms, but that's the one that's in the big book. On page 55, it says, deep down inside every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. We'll find out that lack of power is my dilemma. When it comes to alcohol, once I take a drink, I do not have the power of choice. I'm going to drink again. For two reasons. One, an allergy of the body. And the other, the obsession of the mind. The, the craving of the mind. And the craving of the body. And once that engages, I am absolutely, totally powerless and defenseless to do anything about it at all. Can't do nothing about it. So what goes on to tell me that once I'm in the grips of that, then I'm in the grip of a fatal progression, that three outs I have. Institutionalization, death, what's the other one? Case of insanity, death, or institutionalization. Where I come from, if there's somebody that's sober in the room and they're thinking about drinking, they say, look, if you drink again, you'll stand at the gates of insanity, death, or the Pacific group. That's my home group, I'm not making fun of it. But you get the point? You know, that never scared me. Nobody ever scared me. Nobody can scare me into not drinking. People have tried every kind of scare tactic there is. 
and it isn't going to work because I suffer from a condition of mind, body, and soul. In the book, Sifler says I suffer from a soul sickness. And that's this right here. That's the ism. You ever heard of spiritual separation? Chuck Chamberlain talked about it. Chuck Chamberlain probably had as much to do with my turning around as anybody did, and he was dead by the time it took place in me. He talked about soul sickness. And I'll just give you an aside. When the soul hears the music, it'll dance to the tune. So on page 55, it says, Deep down in every man, woman, child, is from the idea of God. If you don't like the word God, replace it with good orderly direction. Okay? Or AA is a good orderly design for living. G-O-D. So if you don't like my reference to God, just throw in there good orderly direction or good orderly design. It goes on to say that it is obscured. And here's the interesting part. It says it is obscured by calamity, by pop, by worship of other things. So lack of power is my dilemma, right? This is the interesting thing. Lack of power is my dilemma. By the way, if you're listening to this tape and you didn't hear nothing, we were having Donna blow her nose. <laughs> Lack of... By the way, that's the one who got sober at 13, wouldn't you know? <laughs> I don't want to single you out, sweetie. Lack of power. By the way, if, you, if you're sitting there thinking he sponsors a woman, don't judge me yet. Wait till we get to step nine. Judge me then, but not yet. My dilemma is lack of power. Why? Here's the power, right? That's the power. So this is the power. I'm over here. I can't tap into that power because I'm obscured. I'm obscured by calamity. Huh? And worship of other things. You laughing at me? No. Okay. Worship of other things. Or never had a throat something. I'm getting better. You know what calamity is? Now, by the way, if you're starting to think this is psycho babble, I swear to God it's not. It's in the 12 and 12. It's our approved literature, and it's information that we need to understand our spiritual selves. Calamity is a result I get in my life in direct relation to the actions I take and fail to take as guided by my self-will. Pop is an exaggerated sense of self-importance. You know what that is? That's where I, I look at Bill and Bob's picture on the wall and I see mine floating up between them. I become a legend in my own mind. I haven't even acted yet and I'm going to win the Emmy. And I don't even want to be an actor. Worship of other things. Anybody know what that is? Oh, the big O. And we ain't talking about the clone either. Obsession. That's where I give too much thought to one thing, where a crowd got anything else in my mind, where I need to take responsible actions. So anytime I'm preoccupied or giving something too much thought, it's called obsession. And so the power of God, or the higher power, is obscured by these things. And it's like a big light switch. Here's the outlet. You understand what I'm saying? There's the outlet. And here's the cord. And it's attached to me. I'm powerless. Go with me. I don't know any. Did the recharge classes. The best I can do. Uh, this will help you out. Does that look more like me now? 
वो है Antares, all I've got to do, I mean, this is really ridiculous, but it's like the jaywalker, it's really true. All I've got to do is plug into the power source, don't I? It's that simple. If I can just plug into the power, the problem is, and that's the problem, the problem is, is that as an alcoholic suffering from alcoholism, I am obscured from that power by calamity, by pop, and by obsession. And it's just a given. It's almost too simple. You hear me? It's almost too simple. So if I remove the calamity, pop, and worship of other things from my life, I will no longer be obscured. I will see the power, and I will plug in. But how many times do we think we see the power and we plug into something that ain't really the power? Like a him or a her. I love plugging into a her. I, 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 it's like I run around with my vocal cord in my hand plugging in. Will you take me? And when I can't find the her, I'll, I might find it yet. Lassie <laughs> is so sick. I thought Lassie was a girl. Okay. All right. So, Chuck Chamberlain said that I need to uncover, discover, and discard that which separates me from my fellow man and from God. So, we're going to get warmed up for steps eight and nine right now. See, you'll find out something about the steps as I did. Each step is a preparation for the next step. That's why we can't skip no steps. That's why we can't omit any. Each step is a deflator for the next step. I didn't know that. How can we take steps two through twelve if we haven't conceded to our innermost selves that I'm an alcoholic? I have to believe that. Because if I try to take the steps and not believe it, the effect produced by the steps won't take place. I wish it would. But here's an interesting thing. When I admit to my innermost self that I have alcoholism, that I'm powerless with alcohol, there's another part to that, isn't there? Let's take a look at the, let's take a look first. We're getting an insight into what the ism is. Here it is, lack of power, right? That's the ism. Lack of power. You know what the symptoms are? Anxiety. Depression. And fear. Now, aren't those the very things that get medicated on a daily basis in alcoholics and anonymous? That's our symptoms. When you take me away from the power source, I'm going to begin to die. And I'm a spiritual being, whether I like it or not. I'm a spirit, whether I like it or not. I finally came to believe that. You women, I'll, I'll, come, on, I'll come to you right now. How many of you women have had babies? How many of you are mothers? Okay, what happens when you I don't know, how many of you have breastfed your baby? I know my, my wife did. What happens if daddy tries to take that baby away before baby's done? Screams, doesn't it? And it don't stop screaming until daddy takes his freaking hands off that baby and puts it back right where it belongs to. That's its security, isn't it, mom? That's its safety. While it's right there at mama's chest, that baby doesn't know it. I mean, it's only weeks old. But it knows it's safe right there, doesn't it? It's okay. There's no intelligence involved at all. It's just because that baby's a little spiritual being and it knows that it's safe and protected right there. Try to remove that baby from that sense of security and safety and it begins to scream. And you ain't going to stop it till you put it back. Well, I'm 49 years old, but if you take me away from what I like, I'll scream. And I'll do different things. I know I have that proof. So that's the ism. And there's a set of symptoms. Let me set you up for that. Step one. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. 
How many of you know the uh, the uh, makeup of the uh, allergy of the body? There's a thing called trauma. Have you ever been to a joint trauma workshop? They give a... Here's how to do it. Read, read from here. It says, of those who drink, nine out of ten drink safely. They are considered at ease. They don't have the allergy of the body. When they drink... They have these enzymes of sufficient quantity and quality to break alcohol down into acetaldehyde, which further breaks it down into diacetic acid, which breaks it down into acetone, which breaks down the carbon dioxide, sugar, and water, and assimilated into the body and excreted through the obvious fashion. There's one of us out of ten who doesn't drink safely. We're considered a disease. We have the physical allergy, which means I have enzymes of insufficient quantity or quality to break it down to acetaldehyde, which breaks it down to diacetic acid, it leaves the acetone level, which creates a craving. And that craving, one drink sets off that physical craving because I don't have those enzymes. This isn't my opinion. This is what the doctors say. This is the medical expert's advice directed to us. And so there's some of us who have enzymes that are either not strong enough or we're missing them completely to break down alcohol the way it does in 9 out of 10 people. And so when I take one drink or one itty-bitty-bitty bit, I can do See, people who drink old doodles have guns to their head and they don't know it. I'm not giving an opinion. There's alcohol in that stuff. Not only that little bit of alcohol, because I'm an alcoholic and I don't know how much alcohol content it takes to engage my craving. I have no idea how much. I don't even, I don't even uh, use mouthwash with alcohol in it. I don't, I don't want alcohol in my system at all because I don't ever want to kick in that craving that I, I, that I got at the very end of my drinking. Because I know if I pick up one drink, I'm off and running. I just can't take that chance. That's, that's like Russian roulette. I don't want to deal with that. But it's that sensitive. It's an interesting thing. I, I am... Here's a baffling thing. Through most of my drinking, that craving never developed. In AA meetings, I never had it. I had people in AA tell me I'm not an alcoholic. And it was innocent. They didn't mean nothing by it. But when, when I would tell the truth and say, you know what? I could leave the tavern and not drink. They'd look at me like I was some kind of a leper. Because they say, you mean you could stop after three? And they say, sometimes I couldn't. But then sometimes I couldn't. And there's this part I didn't understand about that. I didn't understand it. There's a mental craving too. And the mental craving is the one that's set up by the ism. And here's what I mean by that. When I tell you I'm an alcoholic, here's what I'm really suggesting. I realize I look to you like I'm a full-grown adult mature male. Well, in fact, when I came to AA... I remain childish, grandiose, and gravely emotionally immature. As a growing human concern, my natural state is one of growing anxiety, depression, and fear. Coupled with an intense desire for excitement. Coupled with and complicated with an obsessive, compulsive, impulsive, excessive, controlling, demanding need for attention, acceptance, and approval. A condition of being which renders me restless, irritable, and discontent with life. Now, this also makes my life unmanageable. Follow this. That's part of the spiritualism. It affects my mental emotional nature too. And here's how it affects my mental emotional nature. You'll find all this in the 12 and 12 in the big book. Mentally, my thought life is governed by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. All of which drive me to live my life according to selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, inconsiderate, resentful, and frightened motives in life. 
Motives which left unattended in me arouse and engage dangerous and life-threatening, I said life-threatening, levels of lust, pride, anger, envy, greed, sloth, gluttony. I turn into a pig. I want it all. That renders me emotionally a bit sensitive. Which means I have a strong tendency toward taking everything I see or hear personal. When it comes to suffering emotionally, I don't like to suffer emotionally. I don't suffer well. And I don't suffer alone. Socially, I'm a bankrupt idealist and brooding perfectionist who is defensively unguarded in fear of being found out. As such, I tend to rationalize, minimize, justify, and deny all my actions while casting blame upon innocent people in a vigorous attempt to avoid detection. When it comes to my fellow man and woman, I demand, and I said demand, the absolute possession and control of everybody and every circumstance which enters my arena of life. Therefore, I'm quick to anger. I'm slow to virtue. And I get a distinct, succinct delight and twisted pleasure out of judging and criticizing everybody I see. My outstanding characteristic is defiance. And rebellion dogs my every step. Now, as a child of God, I have to listen to my finer qualities. Anybody want to date? I'm just kidding. Now, you're going to hear those symptoms of every meeting you go to. I, I promise you. But that's not how you're going to hear them. This is how you're going to hear them. I don't fit in. I don't belong. I'm not a part of. My God, what's wrong with me? Remember that? I don't fit in. I don't belong. I'm not a part of. What's wrong with me? I'm outside the circle of life. And I don't even know it. Because it's always them. It's always you. It's never me. I had to protect myself at all costs. And I had no idea that was the basis of step one. And what happens is, is I, I perceive myself in a strange way. My sponsor talks about disease of perception. Because it's all about step one. When I feel that way, like I don't fit in, I don't belong, I'm not a part of, and I'm constantly wondering what's wrong with me, I look at you, and I compare my insides to your outsides. And I know there must be something terribly wrong with me, because I don't feel the way you look. And I want to, but I don't. People become psychotic because of that. You know, if, if, if a, I don't know if you've ever been to a psych ward, but people who are psychotic, they snap. There's so much conflict between reality and fantasy, that at one point they snap, and they never come home. Because they see you one way and themselves another. That's how I live. That's why I kept going to psychiatric wars. I felt like I didn't, I just was going crazy. So apparently I was acting outwardly to match the way I felt inwardly so I wouldn't snap. What's that mean? It means when I feel bad, I act bad. When I feel good, I act good. Doctors call that passive aggressive. When I feel good looking, I can talk to a girl. When I feel bad looking, I can't talk to anybody. I walk with my face down. When I was a kid, I remember I was looking in the mirror at home somewhere between the age of eight and nine, and I said to myself, Butler, it's too bad, pal. It's going to be a long life. And it's going to be lonely because you are butt ugly. Now, I don't know where that came from. My mother never sat me down and said, Oh, you, you poor little son of a... 
just out of mercy alone, I'd put you back if I could. That ain't what my mother said. But that's what I heard when she said, I love you. Isn't that the most interesting thing? And I started to develop a thing called ideas. Ideas. And the reason ideas are important is because in the big book it says, as long as we try to hold on to our old ideas, the result was no. It says we have to let go of our old ideas. Right now we're creeping into the insanity of step two. Right now. Step one leads us right into step two because I've got an insane idea that I can drink. You see, alcohol produces an effect. You know what that effect produced is? Exceeding normalcy. We're going to find out in the 12 and 12 where they refer to it as Bacchus allows us to act extemporaneously. I had to look those words up. Where I come from in the retarded class, we don't use those kind of words. That's something else I should tell you, I suppose. You're being led today by a graduate of the retarded class of 1968. I want you to know that. There was 11 of us in that class, and I was the leader. I'm not making fun. Apparently, because I felt retarded, I acted retarded. And guess what? If you act retarded, you know what they'll do? They'll diagnose you is what they'll do. And in ninth grade, I got diagnosed as severely mentally retarded. And I got put in a retarded class. It wasn't called remedial. It wasn't called special ed. said, there's the retarded kid right over there. And I sat with the retarded kids until I graduated high school. I graduated high school with retarded kids. I didn't understand this insane idea. What's the effect produced? Bacchus. By the way, that's defined as the mythical god of wine. You know what I understand for me today? You don't have to buy this, but it's what I believe. The god of wine refers to the effect produced by alcohol as godlike. What's that mean? It means when I drink, it produces an effect in me that makes me feel normal. Somehow, I can mix with you. I can dance with a girl. I can be a guy amongst men. Uh, all the guys around me aren't better than me, stronger than me, bigger than me, faster than me. I just blend in. And the unfortunate part, the cunning, baffling, powerful aspect of alcohol when it comes to that, is I don't know it. If I could capture it and can it, I'd be a gazillionaire. Just think. Just think if you could bottle and put in pill form all they did value. You understand what I'm saying? Alcohol produces abnormal reaction in my mind. Silkworth calls it the effect produced, and he says in writing in the big book that the effect produced is an illusion. It's only happening in my mind, nobody else's. And the book, the 12 and 12 says that it, Bacchus allows us to act extemporaneously. You know what that big five-dollar word means? Extemporaneously just means to be able to act on natural it says. In other words, if I was to come into this room and never met none of you guys before, I'm going to come in that room feeling fearful, alone, Isolated, insecure, inadequate. But if I took four or five drinks of Budweiser, <laughs> I'd be coming right at you, and I wouldn't even know what's happening. It would just be, it would be released from care, boredom, and worry. But that's what it means by extemporaneously. And then when I sober up, guess what comes? Ability for me to unconsciously retrieve that memory. The book refers to it as recalling the effect produced. It becomes the mental craving. That's why this is important. The mental craving. Here's how it goes. <coughs> Before I drink, I feel bad. I'm alone and afraid. When I drink, I sit in. I'm fine. When I sober up, I feel alone and afraid. My body says, Hey, Butler! Remember last night? We drank 4.5 Budweiser's and we got good looking. Let's go do it again. And then I find myself at Larry's Oasis, 
trying to reproduce that effect produced by alcohol, and I don't even know it. And that's why it's cunning, that's why it's baffling, and that's why it's powerful. And you know what? When I stop drinking, the mental craving takes over. You see, when the mental craving kicks in, I have to drink alcohol. Because the mental craving says, Wayne, last night you were okay. Today you're not okay. we got to have something to drink. And I'm powerless to stop it because it's an unconscious gesture. And then whenever I feel like I don't fit in, I don't belong, I'm not a part of, I promise you what's going to come next is the need for a drink. How many people do we see in AA every day drinking? How many people come in and slip? And the first thing they say is, I quit going to meetings. Well, you see, quitting going to meetings isn't what make them drink, in my opinion. Quitting going to meetings is the direct result of no longer feeling like you fit in your belong or you're part of. So you leave AA, and the unconscious craving kicks in. I need a drink. I need a drink because I don't fit in. I don't belong. I'm not a part of. I'm alone. I have nothing to connect to. Now, that's what happens to me. And I have to have a drink. And that's why I'm going to find out in step 10, 11, and 12 that AA is the solution for an alcoholic like me. Now, some people don't react that way. Remember, Dr. Bob, he doesn't have these problems. That's why Dr. Bob looked askance at Bill Wilson like he was out of his mind. Because Dr. Bob never suffered from the emotionalism. Dr. Bob got sober. A year later, he was fine. He and Sister Ignatius treated alcoholics till the day he died. And Dr. Bob never had so much as this. They refer to it as natural emotional buoyancy. You know what that means? I'll, I'll relate it at a level we might understand. You ever been in love? I mean, love. Real love. Like if they leave, you got to shoot them in the foot. Love. 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 And one of them leaves. And it destroys you. Destroys you to the point where you got to kill something. Yourself or others. They refer to that as faulty emotional dependency. Dr. Bob never had that. When Dr. Bob's wife died, he grieved and was lonely for the rest of his life. But he had natural emotional buoyancy. He came right back up. You know what happens to me? I love pictures. Here's what happens to me. This is, by the way, what kept me from taking medication when I was seven years dry. There's a thing called natural emotional buoyancy. Does that look like a heartbeat? You know, up, down? That's the way it's supposed to be. Everybody has highs. Everybody has lows. My mother, who was a normie, an earth person, my mother would get excited, but then she would come back down in a normal rhythm. When my mother would be sad, she would come like if she lost a wrestling match. Did I tell you my mother was a wrestler? My mother was special. What a piece of work. My mother stood about that big. She weighed, I used to say 240 pounds, but that's a lie. She's about 200 pounds. No fat. Solid muscle. Weightlifter. She had tattoos everywhere. I'm not going to say a word necessarily, but she had two of them on her arms, on her forearms. She had flying eagles tattooed right there. She was great. But if she had an up or down, she would come back normal without any help at all. She would need any assistance to get over it. You know, how many people have told us that when you get over it, well, define it, and I might get over it. Here's what happened to me. There's a thing called... I over E and E over I. This gets a little psychological for a minute, but remember our book talks about moral psychology? This is about the ism. 
I overeat just stands for this. The ability to intellectually override my emotional nature to do the rational, reasonable thing. That ain't me. This one is where my emotional nature governs my life. And I take the emotional action irregardless of how irrational or unrealistic it may be. In other words, my way of life. We have a natural depression. I didn't know this. I found this out from a doctor friend of mine. I have a natural depression. I said out here, always wanting to be like this. Always wondering how they do it. How do they just get over it? How do you... I mean, I loved milk bone dog biscuits when I was a kid. I loved them. They were the best. And uh, when I was about five, I got hooked. You wanted me to tell a story, didn't you, Matt? I got hooked on them. And we had a little beagle. My dad was a hunter. We had a beagle. My mom used to buy a milk bone dog biscuits. And I loved them. They were the best. And my dog didn't want to share. And it was really embarrassing to my mother because I would wait till my mother had friends over playing cards and I'd walk right up to my mom and say, Mom, I have a milk bone. <laughs> and the guest thought I was going to give it to my dog. So she'd go out to the kitchen with me and she'd get me one of the milk bones and she'd cut a deal with me. She'd say, Now if you go upstairs the back way and eat it in your room, you can have it. And I'd look right into my mother's face and lie. I promise. So she'd give me that milk bone and I'd go up the steps for a minute. I'd wait till my mom went back to the card room and sat down and I would walk right through the card room with that milk bone hanging from my mouth. And her friends would go like this. Effect produced. And so she quit buying them at home. So I took up grocery shopping with my mama. When all the other boys were out playing wiffle ball, I was being sissified. I was shopping with my mom. My mom would be over to milk and eggs and I'd be over to dog food section in the aisle sitting on the floor eating milk bone out of the box. It was great. So my mom wouldn't take me shopping no more. And uh, one Saturday, I don't know, this is about five years later, and uh, my mom uh, called my dog out into the kitchen and I knew what it was. I knew she must have some hit. Now, you know, they come out with that big family size. Those are big. I never had one. I seen them advertised on TV. I wanted one. Really bad. And so I went out and I hid behind the couch, waiting for my dog to come trotting back into the dining room with his cake. And as he comes trotting in, I think he's cocky. Because he's got one of them family size dangling from his mouth. And I know he's just trading right past the couch because he knows I'm behind it. And I'm getting madder and madder. And as I think he's getting over on me, and so I leapt out from behind the couch and landed right on him and wrestled him to the ground and tried to take that milk one away from me and he wouldn't give it up. So I went to the refrigerator and I got a handful of hamburgers and came back and tried to trade him for it and the greedy, selfish little mutt wouldn't trade. So I bit his ear off. So I've got his ear dangling in my mouth, blood everywhere, and all of a sudden I see the milk bone fall out of his mouth and I think, I won! And I'm reaching for that milk bone, and the reason he was dropping it is because he bit me really bad in the face. I almost lost my eyesight. He bit my eye right here, and he wasn't letting go. He was mad. I haven't had a milk bone since. I haven't had one since. So, I have this natural depression 
with an obsession for anything that makes an effect produced in me that distracts me from these feelings of not sitting in, not being a part of, and feeling alone. Now, I've got these things called the old ideas. I've got these old ideas. God, I thought we're just... Look up, this says 930. Uh, we've got these old ideas. They're starting to set in. And I want to bring that up because that's step two and three. I feel out this natural depression. I feel bad all the time. And it just there's no explanation for it. My mom does not understand why I feel... There's no reason for me to feel bad. I was a thriving kid. had a little weirdness going on, but I was doing okay. had some interesting thoughts. But then I would, I would do something really bad and get in trouble, and then I would go down here. And I would feel worse. I could never, never go back up. You see, I couldn't do it. And then pretty soon I'd do something bad again, and the, and the, and the fear of being caught, I was going to say the guilt, but it was never the guilt. I have to tell you the truth. I have what's called a got-caught conscience. When I get caught, I feel real bad. And when I started drinking, here's an interesting thing. Drinking, see, people will tell us it's a depressive drug, won't they? Well, to a normal person, it is. It didn't make me depressed. It made me feel excited and a part of. And that's why I went to the tavern. I didn't go to the tavern to get more depressed for Christ's sake. I was already depressed. I went to the tavern to lift my spirit. And somehow I knew, but didn't know, that if I drank a few drinks, it would lift my spirit. It was supposed to depress me. But what it did is it gave me this sense of euphoria. That's separating. It allowed me to feel normal, didn't it? The problem is when I get sober, I come right back down. But do I stop where I was before? No, it's called progressive. It's a progressive condition. And then I just go down to the next level until I just keep going and going and going until I hit bottom. And i got to tell you something. If you're newer in this room, there's a bottom for every height you want to reach and, and the depth of anguish. And let me add this too, because this is leading us into step two and three. When this takes hold, I have to drink. Because I remember. That made me feel that way, right? Now I'm down here. Now i got to drink. Here's the tragedy of alcoholism. Next time I drink, where do I go? Here. And then I go further down and I come. I never get, I never get back up here. First time. First time, that's it. First time. First time that effect is produced. After that, it's an illusion. I'm chasing it from that point on. Never to have it again. That's why I believe, in my opinion, when they tell me if I go out and drink today, it will be as though I drank the whole 21 years I've been sober. Because it's progressive. The only chance I've got is if I don't drink today. So, here's an interesting thing I'll throw out there now. We'll discuss it later. But, you know what happens to a newcomer when they come to AA? Have you heard of the pink cloud? Here's what happens. I'm down here, on bottom, terribly depressed. Unhappy, alone, and afraid. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Wah, wah, wah. I come day A, and you shake my hand. Tell me I'm a good guy. You say there's hope for me. I might even get a job. She might come back. Kids, too. And then I see the girls here. So I have an effect produced, don't I? I really do. Because when I was new, it happened to me. The pink cloud. I went from the worst of the worst to an excitement that I couldn't hardly stand. But unfortunately, you know what happened? I began to go back where I was. Because that's an illusion. 
It's an illusion that many newcomers fall victim to. They think because they feel like this that they're better now. And their desperation goes away. But unfortunately, that's not real. And every newcomer is going to experience this. And if we're sponsors, we need to know that. They're going to come right back down here because this is where they really are. And just like I came through these different stages of depression and isolation and loneliness, I have to go through each one of them getting sober. And let me let me prove that for you. Now how you get a 30-day chip and a 90-day chip and a 6-month chip? What usually precedes that about a week? Anxiety. Fear. You start getting depressed. Don't really want to take your chip. Everybody goes through those waves of anxiety. And then when they take their chip, and how, how many times do you hear people come up to the point, I'm waiting on the hour and I've been sober 47 days, uh, and then they wait for the applause. And then next time, I've been sober 50 days, uh, one day the clap quits. And in the book Living Sober, it warns us about that. I don't clap for anybody unless they got 30 days, 90 days, 6 months, or a year, because I'm not going to fuel their drunk. You know, they say you can't make anybody drink. But I'm going to tell you something. We can make them damn thirsty. True. Because in the book Living Sober, it warns us about that. It warns us about that. It tells us that our ego is going to be reinflated. And pretty soon I'm going to want your attention. And then something's going to happen. A newcomer is going to come along and damn them. You ever had a newcomer spoil everything for you? You got all your... How about this? How many of you sponsor people? How many of you work with people? How many of you worked with someone and then a newcomer came along? What happened to that person you were working with? They don't like it. Because they had all my attention. And then this loser wants time with my sponsor. Go drink! I mean, I sat in my chair hoping they'd drink. I really, I hate to admit that, but I'm thinking, go drink! You can come back someday. Get a new sponsor! That's, and that's really the way, and that's really the way it is. The other thing about AA, we have to be real with each other. That's why this is more this is more like a sponsor workshop than anything else, because I'm armed with the facts about my condition. I'm really effective. I don't mean that egotistically. I'm really effective with new people because I don't play games. Don't let me rephrase that. I don't want it to be negative. I being equipped with the facts the way I am, I know how to sidestep a lot of the stuff I used to buy into, and it didn't hurt them. It hurt me. It kept me new. Because there's a lot of neurosis in this room right now. We may not want to believe it, but there's probably enough neurosis over here by the tape table <laughs> to send the next space shuttle to the moon unencumbered. So this is what makes me drink. I become so reckless and horrible and discontented and life is just screwing me that my mind says, Great! Go right back up there. And then I come right back down and I don't understand why. And I come to AA, and I do real good for 39 days, but there's a long time between 39 and 60. And I remember, God, you remember how they clapped for me at 30? They did it because I was new. I'm going to go drink. That truly happens. People get so used to people clapping for them that when the clapping stops and the attention stops, and if they don't have a program of action by them, they're going to unconsciously drink again just so we'll pay attention to them again. I know. I was one. I'm not blaming. I'm telling you that's what happened to me. So we developed these ideas. So I'm powerless over alcohol. I'm powerless over alcohol. By the way, that's the form, E-T-O-H, ethyl hydroxide. That's the component of alcohol that affects my brain. Ethyl hydroxide. 
That's what makes me feel like you look right now. I'm powerless over alcohol because my mind wants more of the effect produced. And my life is unmanageable because of the ism. Remember, I'm driven by my emotions. I'm unmanageable. And then I develop these ideas. Let's take a look first before we go into step two. Before we go into step two, the book talks about the insanity of the first drink, doesn't it? There's three insanities. First drink, in other words, it's not the caboose of the train that kills you. The first drink. And how the book says it is that we'll be able to someday, somehow, control and enjoy our drinking. That I will be able to take that first drink without impunity. That's an insane idea given our circumstances, right? There's another insanity of the old ideas. And the third is to be normal. Ain't that really why I was drinking? How many of you, be truthful, how many of you right now, if we could wave a magic wand over you and render you normal and not need AA anymore, how many of you would you let somebody wave a wand over you? You bet. I would love to be normal. I'm not one who's grateful I'm an alcoholic. I wish I didn't have anything. It would be nice if I could just wake up in the morning and not have to do any damn cheerful ups. It's going to be a good day today. It's going to be a good day whether I like it or not. Oh, I get to shave today with a razor. Because psych words don't give them to you. And I'm not putting anything down. I'm just saying if I had the opportunity to be a normal earth person where I don't need alternative therapy, my God, I'd jump at that. But for me, alcohol does it. For overeaters, it's food. For them little old sex addicts, it's proper room. <laughs> you hear me? Whatever produces the effect. For me, it was alcohol. And the insane idea is that somehow, someday, I'll be able to control and enjoy my drinking. That's insane. But there's two more that we don't know about. The insanity of old ideas. Let me read how that's defined. Listen to this. This is great. The insanity of old ideas is the idea that somehow, someday, in some way, I will be able to successfully hold on to, adjust to, and live by my old ideas without injury. Even though evidence to the contrary is overwhelmingly present in my life. Isn't that fun? I can keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and expect a different result. That's insane. The idea that I can live by that. That's why my life's unmanageable. It's because I keep living like that. And what happens is, as my life becomes more unmanageable, I begin to feel like I don't fit in, I don't belong, I'm not a part of, I wonder what's wrong with me, and my mind engages a craving for alcohol because it knows that if I take a drink, it'll relieve me of the bondage of myself. And then the other one is that someday, somehow, I will be able to drink to be normal. And then it slips into a deadly area. One day I'll become normal. If I stay sober long enough, I'll become normal. And you know what my biggest problem is today in my sobriety? I'm 21 years, 5 months sober. Not meant for brag, it's just a fact. The thing I worry about the most is the day I'll wake up thinking I'm not an alcoholic anymore. Because I'm going to tell you something. My life today, except for when I'm around Sybil, my life is like that. It truly is. I just went through a terrible emotional upheaval this week. Probably... I experienced the most emotional pain 
I will experience in my lifetime last Tuesday. It buckled me to my knees. And yet, the people around me thought I was staying within the parameters of what they would think is normal. And then I was angry. Threatened to kill people in my mind. Nobody around me knew it. The judge even put into the record that he thought I was a good and decent man. And that I was making a decision based on the welfare of another person that was to their advantage. Put that in the record. And on the inside, I'm thinking, I'll just kill him a little bit. Now, if they think I'm a good guy, I can get away with murder. You know what the book says? It says that I'll begin to act and react sanely and normally. It doesn't say become. It says I will begin to act and react sanely and normally. And so I have to recover from my old ideas. And what's what's how it works say? That I have to be willing to let go of my old ideas absolutely. Now, that leads me. Now, all i got to do is come to believe that I can be restored to sanity, right? That's step two. That's all i got to do. Well, because I know that those are the three insanities I'm dealing with, and my sponsor said I've recovered from those three insanities, he says, I know I'm never going to be normal. But I get to act and react sanely and normally if I do this one day at a time. I get to react and act. I don't get to become. I will always be an alcoholic. My old ideas are being replaced with new ideas. We're going to find that out in step four, eight, and ten. My old ideas are being replaced with new ideas. And the insanity of the first drink, he knows, as I do, that I can't pick up the first drink with impunity. I can't do it. Either the physical craving or the mental craving is going to get me, and I'm going to start drinking again like I was before, only worse. So I'm confident that I've accepted these three ideas. These, these are three ideas. Did you know that? Here's an old idea. I can someday control and enjoy my drinking. That's an idea. If I take a drink, it's an insane idea, isn't it? And it says, the insane idea won out, quote, unquote. The insane idea. So here's an old idea. How do we replace that with a new idea? Very simple. Can't. New idea. I can't do it. So right away we're starting on step two already. We haven't even got out of step one. Do you hear what I'm saying? So step two is I'm powerless over the first drink. I can't drink it, but I have an old idea. Somehow, someday, I'll find a way. Mixing wine and beer. And I did that. Did you ever mix Budweiser and Ripple? I had it in Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. Oh, you know what that'll do to you? It'll give you alcoholic terminal diarrhea. Before you go to the ain't nothing left. These are old ideas. These are the three major groups. But behind that are thousands of old ideas. I've got old ideas about women that I adopted and made up in my own mind. I've got old ideas about men, father figures, authority, people in AA. I only had to meet you one time, and I had a lot of ideas about y'all. And the minute I get an idea, it becomes an old idea. I want you to make sure that's fresh in your mind. The minute I get an idea, it becomes an old idea, and I have to be willing to entertain a new idea to replace that old idea. So when I come into AA, I had to open my mind up and be willing to be willing to hear information and to be guided and directed towards change. Because in the third step, I have now come to believe this is true for me. I don't need anybody help from nobody else but that. I really believe this. I believe I can't safely drink no more. I believe that my old ideas will kill me. I believe that. And I believe that if I try to be normal, I will leave AA. Because normal is not found here. Are there any earth persons in here today? Any Al-Anon? You ain't normal neither. <laughs> See, they're suffering from Al-Anonism. They get, listen, 
I have a lot of respect for the Al Anon. I'm not saying that just because they're here. I'd say that they weren't here. It's because they get sick. Sometimes I've heard they get sicker. Suffering from Al Anonism. I'm going to tell you something. My mama died from untreated Al Anonism. What a terrible way to go. See, a lot of people, Marcus did, but most, a lot of people at AA conventions, when I tell that, they laugh. Because it sounds funny. She died from untreated Al-Anonism. And I mean no disrespect. But to an alcoholic, it sounds funny. But if you're an Al-Anon, it's not so damn funny. Because they understand. They die from the mistreatment of a condition they don't understand either. They do. My mother did not understand why I did what I did. My mother thought I was crazy. To the day my mother died, she never believed I was an alcoholic. Not to the day she died. She believed I was out of my mind. So, step two is very simple. Do I believe this? And I do. I believe it. And I believe that the power that restored my sponsor to sanity in these three areas. And by the way, that's my whole life. Everything about me is my idea. He was setting me up for step three. And I didn't know it. Because now I have to make a decision. Turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him. Right? Remember G.O.D.? Good orderly direction. That's in the 12 and 12. Or how about my favorite? For God, G-O-D, this is my favorite. Group of... Still got power there, Matt? Alright. Group of... Anybody know what it is? Grunts. There's a hell of a lot of power in this room right now. It would be awful hard to drink if I'm in Linda's chair, surrounded by all you. Not because you'll stop me, but because when I'm in the center of the circle, it takes a lot of work to get outside AA and drink. So when I'm in a group of drunks, I'm safe. If I'm in the middle, if I'm not on the fringes, where I can fall off the circle. Then we've got a circle of life here. Remember that circle? I want to be in here with all you. I don't want to be out here no more. I don't want to be out there no more. I want to be inside the circle. So I've got a decision to make. And the third step of the decision is to turn my will and my life over to care of God as I understand it. And then the 12 and 12, it tells us that this is the beginning of the action step. Some people will tell you the third step is not an action step. If you read the 12 and 12, it says, this is the beginning of our action. We have to take action. What's that action? Well, making a decision, you've heard the joke about the frogs on the on the frog. How about Louis the lizard? In the Budweiser commercial? Let's say Louis and his two cousins are sitting on the log. And Louis says, I've decided to jump off the log. How many Louis are left? All three. He didn't jump. He just made the decision. As hokey as that is, it's really true. You know how many times I've decided to change my life? Do you know how many calls I've made? How many times have you... I've been sprinkled, dumped, and damn near drowned in every religion you can think of. I wish this was about getting God. I wish it, I wish it was getting God. You know why? I wouldn't be here. It was just about getting God. It's not about getting God. So many people in AA say it's about getting God. And then they use the big book to prove it. All about... No, no. it's not about getting God. That's my opinion. It's about gaining the power. Getting the power of the higher power. That's what it's about. 
because I've been places trying to get God. It's not their fault. See, when I walk into a church, I usually feel different. Not today. How many of you walked in church where you came today and felt like you fit in, was a part of, belonged, or was accepted unconditionally? How many of you thought the preacher was talking to you specifically? And that you knew he'd been talking to your wife or husband? I walk into AA, and it doesn't matter what group I go into, I may not fit in their group, because many groups do it different ways according to where they're from, but I fit in AA no matter where I am. When I sit in a chair, I belong. Because I'm an alcoholic. I have this strange mental twist that most of you have. If you're a type 2 alcoholic, if you're a Bill W. type. Now, if you're a Dr. Bob type, I'm going to promise you right now, you are sitting there thinking I'm out of my mind. You are sitting there thinking I'm full of crap and this is all psychobabble. I promise that's what you're thinking. And I don't have ESPN. I just know how the Dr. Bob type thinks. They don't have this emotionalism and they don't believe it. They want us to just straighten up, God damn it, grow up! Quit acting like that! And so they shun me. And then I run into a guy that understands me and he says, sit down and shut up! And then Dr. Bob comes and says, don't talk to him like that. <laughs> You'll hurt his feelings. They don't mean no harm. Not at all. They mean well. They're the lovers. I'm the mother. I help a little old lady cross the street so I can get her first on the other side. By the way, I hope you don't hear no animosity. I am not putting them down. I'm telling the truth about the two differences. And here's a little letter that Bill Wilson wrote to the New York State Journal of Medicine. Some people don't believe this, that there's two vaguely different, two totally different types of alcoholics, and there's five groups. Here's a letter he wrote to the New York State Journal of Medicine. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to excerpt down to the second paragraph. It says, Our oldest members have been sober for from eight to nearly ten years. Of those sincerely willing to stop drinking, about 50% have done so at once. 25% after a few relapses, and most of the remainder have improved. It is probable, because they asked Bill Wilson when he was addressing the journal, what he thought the makeup of Alcoholics Anonymous was personality-wise. says, it is probable that half of our members, had they not been drinkers, would have appeared in ordinary life to be normal people. You hear that? The other half would have appeared to be more or less pronounced neurotic. Two, ism, normal. When Dr. Bob's type of an alcoholic drinks alcohol, their life becomes unmanageable. When they sober up, it returns to normal. See, there's an effect produced over here. They start out normal, right? When they drink, they become abnormal. When they sober up, they go back to normal, don't they? When I drink, I start out Rocked out of my friggin' mind. I am emotionally sensitive. And I know the world's out to get me. My mother doesn't love me and I've got big feet. When I drink, I get the damn good looking, I can't stand it. When I get sober, now my feet grew. And that's the difference between me and them. And they say to me, grow up. Get responsible. Can't you just go to work? And they mean well, but see, this guy over here says, I understand how you feel. Let me take you looking for work. You see the difference? 
Neither one means to hurt nobody. But if I didn't understand which type of alcoholism I got, I could be in deep trouble. And this letter is what I found when I was seven years sober. And it saved me. Because I knew in my home group in Illinois, there was only about three of us that were like Bill Wilson. And the other 40 were like Dr. Bob. And he tried to kick me out of AA. Hey, just because I tried to shoot my sponsor. Did I mention that, Matt? I, I come into my home group one night. I'd been drinking. And my sponsor yelled out, Hey, Donnie! I turned around and said, Well, he said, You know this program tends to work better if you don't drink? I didn't know that. And that bothered me. So I reached out into my cowboy boot and pulled out my 357, wheeled it around and fired the round off at my sponsor's face. I missed him six inches high. They say if Barney would have been six foot tall, he'd be six foot hundred. I came through the next morning in six-point leather restraints tied to a steel bed in the center of a padded room at Francis's Mental Health Center in Rock Island, Illinois. On my 17th trip to the psych ward, I was black and blue from head to toe from a little AA group therapy. <laughs> had a visitor. You know who it was? My sponsor. Couldn't get rid of him for nothing. How much time have I got left on that tape, man? You got an hour and a half tape in there? I can't remember what time I started. Okay, good. So, step three is making a decision to turn my will and life over to care of God. Now, if you're a type, if you're a Dr. Bob type alcoholic, I'm, I'm not trying to offend you because I know that we both need AA just as bad as each of us does. It's just that I need it severely because I have this emotional disorder called alcoholism. It's not neurosis. Let me, let me talk about that for a minute. You know, in, in, the, in the, the doctor's opinion, where he gives those types, that type where he says there's a manic depressive type, the psychopath type. A lot of people are using that right now as wholesale permission to take whatever drugs you want. Because after all, we're manic depressive. I was diagnosed manic depressive seven years sober. I'm not manic depressive. I'm seriously and willfully misdiagnosed, in my opinion. I'm a manic depressive type. You know why that's important? When I was reading this stuff, Bill Wilson wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine, wondering why he always used the word type. Don't you find that fascinating? Why didn't he just say the manic depressive alcoholic? Why didn't he just say the psychopath alcoholic? Why didn't he say psychopath type? The emotionally unstable type. The manic depressive type. In my opinion, I'll submit to you, it's because we're really not. We appear to be symptomatically. I'm a type of a drinker that appears to be all those things. But I'm truly not diagnosable as that. What I am is an alcoholic suffering from alcoholism. And I suggest to you that if that's the case, if I take the prescribed course of action laid out in the book Alcoholics Anonymous and the Twelve Traditions, those symptoms will subside. And the reason I can tell you that without a bad conscience at all is because that's my personal experience. Seven years sober, gaining the information that I'm sharing with you a little bit today, I took the 12 steps, used the big book, the 12 and 12, and the outlines I put together, and I took the 12 steps. And I stayed active in AA. By my ninth year sober, that depression is gone. And that depression has never come back. And I'm not up here lying. I'm not a false prophet. I'm just telling you that the darkness and the cloud is gone. And I know why. And I'm going to show you how I did it. See? Still didn't grow no new hair. Still got big feet. But I'm not pouting anymore. See? I'm plugged into the big power now. That's all. Steps 10, 11, and 12. We'll get to that this afternoon. Steps 10, 11, and 12 allow me to plug in. I'm plugged in. As long as I stay plugged into that power, I'll be happy, joyous, and free. Well, step four is where we start plugging into the power. 
First, we have to unplug it completely. Now, have you ever heard the four paradoxes? <coughs> One of which is we die to live. You know what that means? Does that mean I've got... I'm going to ask my sponsor that. Barney, does that mean I literally have to die and be brought back to life? Like Clancy? Clancy committed suicide and was pronounced dead and they brought him back to life with CPR. I thought that's what they meant by you got to die to live. I got to oh, you die? I mean, have you seen the great ghost? And my sponsor says, you're stupid. You are so stupid. And I was offended by that. And I said, why are you calling me stupid? He said, well, because you're... Then he took me to the 12 and 12 and showed me right there where it says we have been especially stupid. <laughs> says that right in the 12 and 12. We have been especially stupid and stubborn. And he said, in your case, you're S-O-F. He said, what's S-O-F? He said, stuck on stupid. I love him. So, step three is the beginning of going into step four where we become ready to remove those things between step four and step nine that obscure me from the power greater. Step one, my life is unmanageable because of deism. I'm powerless over alcohol because of the mental craving and physical craving. I have these insane ideas about life. And I have to be willing to let those old ideas go. How do I do that? Can you just let go of an old idea? Come here, James. James is my favorite. <laughs> but he doesn't want to be my favorite because that's not good but until he gives me a better idea he's just so you think he's just going to stand here and be my favorite or you think he's going to try to find me a new idea <laughs> until he let him wear black until I get a new idea more obviously worthy than the old idea I submit to you, I won't let go. I, I just won't. See, that's why we do the idea of substitution in AA. Remember we substitute alcohol with AA. I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself. In chapter 11 it says, do we have a sufficient substitute? You know what they're talking about? They're talking about the effect produced by alcohol and trying to live by old ideas. Do we have a sufficient substitute? And it says in chapter 11, yes. We have a sufficient substitute and vastly more than that. We have a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to show you how if you're, if you're on this side of step four, that fellowship is over there and I'm over here. I'm shaking my fist. Get it? Step four. I'm still obscured from the power. Power's over here. I'm over here. Powerless. And I'm on step four. Some people think that when they get step two and three that they've got God and they're on the path. That idea has probably killed a lot of us. It only means we're in the potential. See, step two is I came to believe that God could help me through you. Step three is I'm making a decision to turn my will on my life. So what constitutes my will in my life? I want to read that before we break. We got five minutes in that? Four. Okay. All right. Think about this while we're on break. In relation to steps one and two, our mental and emotional natures develop in direct proportion to our collective ideas about life and life events. That's to say, our old ideas. Ideas which ultimately determine our will and our lives. Practically speaking, these ideas determine just how we shall think and just how we shall act. That came out of 12 and 12, page 37. 
Mentally is defined as how we think about ourselves, God, others, and the world about us in relation to our collective ideas, which is to say our thoughts, beliefs, opinions, and attitudes about life and life events. Those ideas constitute my will. So when I say I'm making a decision to turn my will over, that's a pretty big decision. How many times do we get up in the morning and make a decision and two minutes later we take it back? It's because we're trying to turn over all of our ideas about life and folks, we can't do that. We have to settle for a day at a time inventory process where we identify the old ideas, uncover, discover, discard them, and replace them with new ones. And our emotional is how we feel about ourselves, God, others, and the world about us as a result of the actions we take and fail to take in relation to the ideas we've developed or adopted, which result in our lives. So when I say I'm turning my will and my life over the care of God as I understand it, I'm saying I'm going to turn over all of my thinking to you. <laughs> and the actions I take and fail to take. We're going to find out later on in 12 and 12 where it says an alcoholic like me has to become willing to take advice and accept direction to recover. See, a lot of people say, don't let nobody tell you what to do. That is one of the things that kill more alcoholics. If you're one of them that says that, please don't say that because my type of an alcoholic, people make suggestions, we tell you they told us. And if you tell us not to listen and nobody tells you what to do, you're sentencing me to drink. And if you think that's not true, I have living experience. What I do is I try to make a suggestion, but I hear an order. And see, for me, I have to be willing to take advice and accept direction because I'm turning my will and my life over to the care of God's understanding. Group of drunks, good early direction, good early design for living. And when I make that decision, I have to make that decision with someone who knows what they're doing. And if you read the big book, it tells us to make sure we take this step with a spiritually fit First, Let's take a break. Ten minutes.